Good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. We got some of the first fall weather of the year, which is uh, kind of late in the year for us, and it's going to be a little bit warmer even today. Um, yeah, it's just been kind of kind of odd. It hadn't felt like fall. My son the other day saw a red leaf and goes, "Daddy, it's fall." And I'm like, "You wouldn't know it by how it feels out here, though, would you? What's your son?" Um, so anyway, we're going to continue on in our study of the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 6. Uh, last week, we tackled the uh, first seven verses of chapter 6. It was a small passage, but we needed to kind of take it just as a small passage last week because of um, its importance. Um, as we saw, the, the early church have its first kind of systemic problem, uh, first big um, cultural problem between um, the Jewish people who, um, you know, grew up with the traditional, you know, Hebrew Aramaic language um, and those who grew up in different places and kind of had adopted the ways of the, the Greek world and had, you know, Greek as their, their language and as their, you know, they named their children Greek names. Um, they largely forgot, uh, many of them forgot their Hebrew, you know, tongue. Um, and so they used the Septuagint, which is the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament uh, Hebrew um, as their text. And so that's going to come into play even this morning in our lesson. So I just want to give a reminder of that. But we see in it that God, um, through the people, appointed uh, seven men to help with the distribution of the food for the widows. Um, and that these that were, were selected were from the minority group. They were uh, from the, the Greek-speaking side. Uh, we know that because all of these men have Greek names. It's interesting, the last one that we didn't talk about last week, Nicholas was actually a proselyte to Judaism, so he was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. And then when he hears the message of Jesus, then that makes you know, even more sense to him because it's the fulfillment of all the things that he had you know, heard and learned and had been taught. And so then he becomes a follower of Jesus. So he's actually made two, you know, radical shifts in his faith in his lifetime. Um, It's pretty powerful that he was, you know, he was adaptable to the truth. Um, He he wanted to know the truth. And and even though that would cause him to say, well, I didn't see this right, you know, two major times in his life. He has to say, I didn't see it right. And then he has to say, I didn't see it fully. Um, and, and to turn and, and to become a follower of Jesus. But he obviously had a great reputation and was one of the seven that was um, selected. And this is important because the message of the, of the book of Acts is that you know, Jesus gave this mission to the church to be his witnesses in Jer- Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the you know, uttermost parts of the earth. And that, you know, this, this whole book is a story of that. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through each section. Like, how does this section fit into this bigger, broader story of the message of Jesus Christ going forward in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Like, how, how does it fit in? Because every part of the book of Acts fits into that story. That's the story that Luke is telling. And so we need to keep that in mind. And that informs um, what Luke includes and doesn't include um, in his book because obviously many other things happened in the history of of the early church. Um, But Luke gives us the things that particularly relate um, to the advancement of of the message of Jesus Christ and the growth of the church. And he also addresses things that would hinder that. He addresses major transitions when a new people group um, is being reached or being reached in, in a large number. And so these are the sorts of things that Luke um, is interested in. And as we go into our lesson today, um, he's going to give this message of of Stephen. As as Stephen um, himself and his message ends up giving um, an opening new doors and a new direction uh, for the gospel to go forward in in a a powerful way. 
Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll get um, into this and the rest of um, Acts 6 and beginning verse 7, or chapter 7. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love uh, for us this morning. We thank you for your word that teaches us, instructs us, and shows us how to live. We thank you for the testimony of the early church that they were willing to work through their issues and their difficulties, that they loved one another deeply and fiercely, um, that they were willing to sacrifice for one another. And so, Lord, help us to learn from their example. Help us to learn from the message of Stephen today and um, from your word and, and that we would apply it um, in some ways to our, our lives uh, today and even this week, Lord. Uh, just make us more like your son, Jesus. Um, make our church more as you would have it to be, Lord Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's, I'm going to just begin verse 7, just because uh, that verse is just so encouraging. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We saw that last week as the result of taking care of this systemic problem um, and having the, the Hebrew and Hellenist believers you know, really being united in spirit and mind and in one community was such a powerful testimony that even many of the priests who had been so resistant to the message of Jesus Christ before have now been softened and open to it and have become believers. Verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so let's stop there for a moment as we set the scene. And so we have Stephen uh, again, one of the seven who was appointed you know, to take care of that administrative duty for all the widows in the community. But he also did a lot of other things. And you see that God had you know, given him a lot of ability and power, um, that he says he was full of grace and power, and that he did great and wondrous signs. He could do you know, miracles. He, could do, you know, he did a lot of things that the apostles, uh, that we've seen the apostles do, that we've seen Peter and John do so, fo- so far um, in the book. Um, and so there's this group of people from the synagogue of the freed men. Again, you know, this goes back to this, this reality that you have a, a lot of Greek-speaking Jewish people, and so they have their own synagogue. Remember, the temple was the holy place to go and offer sacrifice and to worship, but the synagogues were these places of learning and teaching and of you know, obtaining greater understanding. And so many of the people, if they went to the Hebrew synagogues, you know, they... They would sit there and, you know, you know you, when you don't know the language, you just sit there and you try to ab- apprehend something, but it's really difficult if you don't have somebody there explaining it in the language that you speak. And so they had their own synagogue where they would, you know, use the Septuagint, the Greek, you know, version of the Old Testament, and they would, you know, discuss and learn and teach in the language that they understood. Um, and so, you know, that's what they did. And Stephen would go there because, you know, these are his people. He's like them. You know, he comes from a different place, just like they come from a different place. And, you know, he speaks the language that they speak, and he understands their customs and their ways. And he is greatly equipped to be, the, to be a person to share the message of Jesus Christ with them. And so as he does that, there are people there who don't like the message that he's saying. They dispute him, but the reality is because he has the truth on his side, and because he's a man of great wisdom and the Spirit, and that's really key there. He doesn't, you know, he's got a lot of human intellect and a, a lot of you know, giftedness in that regard given by God, but he doesn't just have that. He just doesn't have just an understanding. He also, he's, he's full of the Spirit of God. He's got a spiritual authority and power in his preaching, in his teaching, and people pay attention to what he has to, to say. 
you know, when it comes to this sort of thing, it's not enough just to have the facts. You also have to have the Spirit of God um, there present and working. So they could not withstand that, meaning they couldn't argue against that. They couldn't give good rebuttals that, you know, the people would, would go, oh, well, we won't listen to Stephen anymore. You know, people are very attracted to what Stephen is saying. And so it says they, they instigate people, they instigate these men to make false accusations. Now, when we need to understand in this that there's some truth in their accusations, but in how they, their emphasis in it and in their motivation, that, that's all um, you know, misguided and, and ultimately sinful. Ultimately sinful. I mean, it is true that Jesus, you know, um, taught, you know, basically fulfilled the requirements of the old Old Testament, and the old things were fading away, and then, you know, because the new has has come, and there's, you know, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and because he he's the ultimate Lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins, there's now no more reason to go and to offer offer sacrifices in the temple. I mean, that's a huge, big, I mean, that's massive, massive change. That's, I mean, that's true that Jesus was about that. There's, you know, now Jesus is the ultimate high priest, and through him we go directly to the throne of God, and, you know, you don't need this priest to offer a sacrifice on, on your behalf. Yet those are big changes. I mean, those are massive changes. There's no getting around that. But that's different than speaking, you know, bad or blasphemous or, in a, in a very negative way about Moses and the law and these things. And so they took the truth of Stephen, what Stephen was doing, and they distorted it into a lie you know, and, and made it that Stephen was doing something that was, that was wrong and intentionally offensive. Um, and we need to remember the message of Jesus Christ for many people is offensive enough on its own. It doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to add offense to it. Um, and Stephen certainly isn't trying to add offense to it. He's not, you know, intentionally, you know, he's not, he's not sitting there with a the goal of like, I'm going to say these things and make people angry. I mean, his motivation is I'm going to tell the truth about Jesus Christ. And hopefully some of you will believe in the message of Jesus Christ. And if it makes others angry in the process, then that's, that's just how it is. You know, it is what it is on, on that level. Um, and so... That's his, his approach. And so they, they you know, say he's doing these evil things. They stir up the people and the elders and the scribes. They seize him. They drag him before the council. And that's the same council Peter and John you know, have been in before. Um, you know, and, and they've made it out you know, relatively unscathed compared to what Stephen is about you know, to, in, to endure. Um, but again, they set up these false witnesses, and their main accusations have to do with Jesus, the temple, and, and Moses. And so that's going to dictate the message that Stephen gives and what he emphasizes in, in his message. He's going to start back with, with Abraham and go to that common ground, that common point, and he's going to build from there. And so this is just a tip for us, you know, living today, you know, 2016, Athens, Georgia, in a multicultural, you know, multi-ethnic, you know, community where we meet lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds. You know, know your audience. That's a little, that's a little bit of a tip for, for us today is, you know know, know your audience and who you're trying to share Jesus with. Because who you're trying to share Jesus with and their background and their understandings dictates, you know, where you start in that conversation. If Stephen, you know, like later on we see Paul in, you know, the Greek city of of Athens with, with its, you know, numerous gods, he begins at a very different point when he's talking, you know, sharing the gospel with them than Stephen does here with everyone, you know, almost everyone of a Jewish background you know, having the same ancestors, having this, the same story. You know, he didn't have to go back and start with trying to convince everyone that there's a creator God, you know, who made, who made us and made everything. You know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's an assumed reality for these, 
for these people. So he didn't have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. But he starts with God specifically calling Abraham for the purpose of making a, a nation that would be a blessing to all the other nations and a light and a testimony to them. And so that's, you know, he goes back to their, you know, dominant ancestor, Abraham, and that's where he begins. That's where he begins. So the lesson for us is know who you're talking to, and, and sometimes when you meet somebody new, you really have to ask them questions, and you've got to hear their story in order to know who you're talking to. You know, I mean, there's times where we, you know, there's very limited time, you know, that we have to just kind of get it out there with the message, but most of the time we have opportunity with people to ask them questions and to, to listen and to hear somebody's story before we just start saying, well, I'm going to begin here. Well, how are you deciding where you're beginning? You're, you know, you're, you're making assumptions, but those assumptions aren't necessarily based on a reality of who that person is and where they are um, in their journey. And so you need to strive to try to, to try to know that, to try to know that. Stephen knows his audience here very, very well. So chapter 7, verse 1 begins, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out to the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And so there, uh, you know, Stephen begins by saying, you know, brothers and fathers, you know, he's identifying, you know, I'm one of you. You know, we're, we're really not that different. We're really not that different. I'm one of you. And, and he says, hear me. And that is actually a, you know, a harken back, even the, like the, the Shema that the, the, the Hebrews would say, hear, O Israel. You know, and, it's a, and it's this call that the prophets have. It's, it's a hear that, that you know, desires a response to it, a, a correct action. You know, it's not just hear and then just do nothing with it, but it's, you know, it's hear and, res- and respond is like that implied. Like really listen, pay attention, and then act on what I'm saying here. Hear me. You know, hear, hear me. Um, and so he's, he, he has this, and he, and he alludes the, to this great faith of, of Abraham that he was called out. And, and you know, the story of Abraham for us is, is, you know, is a great story of, of faith. And, and we know Abraham wasn't a perfect man. We know he didn't do everything exactly right all along the way, and his faith had to grow. And sometimes, you know, he tried to, to use human solutions to, to spiritual problems. And, and that always ended poorly. Whenever he tried to just solve issues in his, you know, the, the, the things in his flesh, instead of relying on God, th- those were the missteps. Yet, at the same time, you'll be hard-pressed to find a human being with more faith than Abraham had. You'd be hard-pressed to find that. And so in verse 5 it says, Yet he gave him no, God you know, gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So God promised Abraham certain things. Um, and Abraham didn't see with his own physical eyes all of those things fulfilled in his lifetime. The land of Israel, he actually you know, didn't possess it himself here. It says you know, he didn't even have a foot's length in it. But if you asked at this, and this is important for, for later on in the message, but if you, if you ask the people of Israel, whose land is this? They say, you know, it's Abraham's land. Because, you know, by extension, everything that Abraham, you know, everything that the descendants of Abraham have belonged to Abraham. Does that make sense? You know, and that's how they viewed it, you know, in a cultural way. And that's important, you know, moving on through the text. You'll see it here in a few verses. 
Um, but, th- but that's powerful. You know, we also see that, and we saw, saw it in uh, Genesis chapter 15. So that's Genesis 12 where the promises are made and Abraham leaves his land. In Genesis 15, you know, God even, you know, promises, hey, there's going to be this period of time where, you know, your, your descendants are down in, in Egypt and they're going to be oppressed. And I'm going to judge the land that oppresses them, the people that oppress them. But nevertheless, they're going to go through a difficult period of time. That was um, going to be part of the story. And the reason that I, will, uh, that I think it's important for us to, to, to understand that today, uh, just like it was important for under, Abraham to understand that he wasn't in his lifetime going to get to see all the fulfillments, the fulfillment of God's promise to him, and that there would be tough days ahead. It's just that in, in our day and age, in our time of spirituality here in the United States of America in 2016, we don't really understand suffering. We don't understand tough times. And we automatically equate that if things are not going perfectly well, that something is not right, you know, and that God is, is, you know, must be, you know, angry with us, or we've committed some sin, or we have some huge massive problem, or something to that effect. That's not the biblical narrative. That's not the biblical story. You know, what if you were born in the middle of the oppression in Egypt? You were born a slave and you died a slave. Is God still good? Does he still care about your life? Can you still have a relationship, you know, with him based on faith if you were you know, born back in this time in land of Egypt and you were born a slave and you died a slave? That your entire life was survival. You made bricks, you know, to build the great things of, you know, beautiful things of Egypt. But that was your life. You were born a slave, you died a slave. You know, and, and in today's day and age, I'm, I'm afraid that's not a very palatable message for the church. It's not a palatable message for individual followers of Jesus. Because when, you know, I actually had this experience the other day, a guy was playing basketball, the guy was wearing a shirt in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, you know, we've had some conversation, you know, he knows me or whatever, and after the game he comes up, he goes, man, I don't get mad very much, but when that, when that guy, you know, does this and this, you know, it, it just, it just makes me angry. And I said, yeah, but, you know, your your shirt says, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And he looks at me kind of funny. He's like, like, what do you mean? I said, you understand what that verse is about? He's like, you know, the Apostle Paul basically, because he's writing back to the church at Philippi, he was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. And Paul and Silas are there in in the prison after being beaten, and they're worshiping God and praising God. What Paul is saying that he knows how to be beaten and how to praise and worship God and and be joyful in his heart. And he knows how to sit in in a nice house and eat a really nice meal and to worship and praise God. But for the average follower of Jesus wearing a Philippians 4.13 shirt, what they mean by it is I can accomplish my personal individual goals I can make the basket, or I can strike out the guy, or whatever. I mean, in sports, it happens all the time. It drives me crazy because I'm like, okay, you got two followers of Jesus. On a, one of them at bat going, Lord, through you, I can hit a home run. And the other one going, Lord, through you, I can strike him out. Well, how does that leave? The, what does that do to the faith of the one who succeeds and the faith of the one who fails? But the reality of the verse and the reality of the teaching of Scripture is whether win or lose, whether succeed or fail, quote-unquote, in human terms, I can be joyful in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't use that as an excuse for not trying. We don't use that as an excuse for being okay with whatever. But we have to understand the context of the Scriptures, and the context of the Scriptures is all... That all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yet, we have this popular 
Christianity that says, man, if things aren't going 100% your way every day, something's wrong you know, with your faith, something's wrong in your life, something this, that, and the other thing. And there's no space. There's no space for the things that are difficult and that are hard. But where does God form the character of his people? Where does God form the character of his people? When you look at the biblical record, God forms the character of his people in adversity and in difficulty. And when things aren't A+, when things aren't going wonderfully well, God shapes and forms the character of his people in those places and those spaces. And so when we find ourselves in those places and spaces, the first thing we want to do is get out of it, which is natural. And that's our natural human fleshly response. But a lot of times we need to be there going, God, what do you want to teach me in this moment? What do you want to teach me and change my character when things aren't great? What do you have for me there? And the result of, as a whole, the church in our day and age being unwilling to embrace that spiritual biblical reality is that we end up with a very shallow faith and a very immature body of Christ. And we also end up giving people a false gospel. Because we, we make the gospel this like almost like a 12-step program towards you know, this wonderful, great, grand life where there aren't any problems. When in fact, I think the scriptural record is at periods of time, there are going to be periods of time if you're a follower of Jesus, that being a follower of Jesus will have brought on more problems in your life, will brought on more difficulties, a different kind, and certainly hopefully be able to avoid many of the self-inflicted you know, things that happen because of, of, of sin. But yet many things in our life should be, should be more difficult and should be harder because there's a sacrifice involved in it. And if there's no sacrifice, then again, are, are we being true to the scriptures? Because page after page after page, we read sacrifice. Either the sacrifice of God or the sacrifice of someone else for the purpose of God. Page after page after page, that's the biblical story. That's the record. And yet, we make it the dream of the American Christian life to remove any and all difficulty and adversity. When many times we should be running towards that and embracing it because that's where growth happens. That's where growth happens. So next time we say, I don't want to do X because it's hard, okay, but then the next phrase should be, but I'm going to do X because it's hard and that's where I can grow. And that's where I can help the body of Christ grow. Now, I don't get too sidetracked on that, but man, we see it here. I mean, again, you got people who were born slaves and died slaves. That was God's plan for their lives. That they would be, I mean, it was prophesied. You're going to have this long, multi-generational period of time, slavery in Egypt. Now, obviously, you know, we're at a different part of the story now in our history. So we don't, again, we don't use that and go, well, we just accept slavery. You all know better than that, what, you know, what this church teaches and who we partner with and work with and try to fight against modern-day slavery and the, all of those things. You'll, you'll know where we are. But, man, it seems like... Um, I saw a quote the other day. It's like, man, it's so true. You know, we, our churches today, we, wanna, we just want to have parties and festivals and good times you know, while the world around us is basically going to hell. But, but we're content just to have another, have another party. And that is, unfortunately... That's a lot of what the modern church has become. 
you know, we, we have a party while the city burns. Let's move on. Verse 8. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 people. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Okay, so Stephen continues his message to this point by giving a, a brief summary of the rest of Genesis. So basically, he covers like Genesis 16 to the end of the, end of the book pretty much here. Um, in, you know, eight, nine verses. That's pretty impressive uh, to be able to do, um, especially for someone preaching. And, uh, you know, this is, this is powerful, what he gives here. And, he, he, and so he lays out that story. And you can go back and read it in the book of Genesis for yourself uh, if you so desire and to learn. But I, w- I want to make a couple of points here that are, that are important. One is just that in the midst of adversity and of trial and of trouble, we see the, the faithfulness of Joseph. Um, you know, I mean, he spent a lot of time in prison for a crime he didn't commit, um, you know, he, I mean, he had been sold by his brothers. I mean, consider that. His brothers. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. Um, you know, it, it is pretty, pretty rough. Pretty rough for a lot of his, his life. But God did um, give him favor and a position um, in Egypt and used him to, to save the people. And in, in many ways, Joseph is a, a small picture of, of Jesus and what he's done for all of us, you know, and, and you know, in his, his suffering through innocence and uh, in his providing a way of salvation, you know, for many. Um, Joseph is somewhat of a, of a little bit of a picture of, of Jesus Christ for us. Um, there's a couple points that I, I want to make here because some people will take this passage and just get, take this message that Stephen gives and buy it try to say, well, you know, there's these, there's these discrepancies here uh, in certain numbers and in certain, you know, names and things, and, and therefore you can't, you know, you can't trust your Bible. You, you can't trust what it says. Uh, and so I wanted to talk just a little bit, of, very briefly about that this morning. Um, just a word on the inerrancy of Scripture and what we mean by that when we say the Scriptures are, are inerrant. First of all, you have to understand a good definition of that is, you know, we're talking about the original manuscripts, the original writings as given, you know, through the Holy Spirit, you know, given by the Holy Spirit that these men wrote down. What we were saying is what was given to those original prophets and written down was perfect and without error. It recorded facts. Sometimes those facts are disturbing. Um, as it records the sins that people committed. So it's not... Like, hey, everything here is good. You know, take, you have to read it in each section and what it is, and it's telling you, hey, these are sins that people did, and these are the, the consequences of that. And so, there's some pretty horrific stuff that we read about in there, but that it is true and it is accurate and it is valid. Now, over time, as we have you know transcription, as things are copied and written one to another, now. They did a phenomenally amazing job of that. And also, as it was translated into different languages, we are not saying that every word, every number that's there in your English Bible that you read today is perfect and without you know, any difficulty at all. We're not saying that. What we are saying is that those are, are two things. One minor, 
and two, that we know what they are. Because we have so many ancient manuscripts, and we're able to compare, and we're able to say, well, here in this, in, you know, these manuscripts we found out over here, the number of people it says went down, you know, to Egypt, it says 75, and it, Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. And in these that we have over here, it says 70. Okay. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it says 75. Now, Stephen, using the Greek here, he goes with the 75 number. Again, some of the Hebrew ones that were copied say 75. Some of them say 70. I really hope that doesn't rattle your faith in any sort of way. It shouldn't. I think it's used you know, by people who all, you know, already have an agenda. The agenda is for people not to believe in what the Scripture says. To make a huge deal out of that. Where myself and I think most of us are not willing to live or die based on whether it's 70 or 75. You know, we know these manuscripts say this, these manuscripts say that, and we're not hiding it. What cult groups try to do, and people that are trying to hide truth do, is try to make it as if some don't say 70 and some don't say 75. But we say, Hey, here it all is, and people can look at it and make their own determination on what they think the right number should be. Though, I don't see how it's possibly relevant in your life today, whether that number was 70 or 75. We know that whichever one, whichever one God gave Moses, yes, and there is some rounding that happens in the scriptures too, but whatever, whatever number that... Moses originally wrote down, whether it was 70 or 75, was the right one. I personally don't know which one he wrote down. I don't know. Might ask him when I get there. Probably not, though, because I really don't care. I really don't. You know, it's not, not that of, of an issue. Um, and so these things are minor. If, you, if you've had our, read our Foundations book or have looked through that, we have a chart in there that gives you know, ancient manuscripts and the numbers of copies that we have and how old they are. We've got a chart that describes this. And if you compare the Old Testament and the New Testament to anything of ancient literature from those times, you'll find the number of manuscripts that we have and how old those manuscripts are make pretty much everything else in the ancient world pale in comparison. It doesn't hold a candle to what we have. And so that's why with such great confidence, we are able to say that the Bible is true in what it affirms. You know, that we're, no, we're not going to sit there and live or die based on whether number 70 or 75, but we are going to live and die based on the whole message of this book that tells us that God created us in his image and that he loves us and that Jesus died for us on the cross, was buried, you know, and rose again from the dead. And he's going to return. Like we, we believe those, that about the message and so much more. Uh, but those little minutia things shouldn't um, cause you difficulty. If they do cause you difficulty, please come and talk to one of the elders or to you know, someone with more um, knowledge you know, on these things and you know, work through whatever specific issues that you have. Personally, I think it's pretty safe to say here, um, some would argue, again, so that's fine, that, you know, Paul, uh, that sorry, Stephen is just quoting from the Septuagint, and so he uses a 75 number that's in the Septuagint. Uh, I think that's the easiest. Others are going to say, well, there's different ways you can count the numbers, and it's true. In terms of, you know, are, are you counting the ones that were already in Egypt, or the, and, and separately from the ones that came you know, with Jacob and the rest. And there's, so there's, there's ways that you can arrive to the 70 number and there's ways that you can arrive to the 75 number. Don't think it, yeah, don't think it matters. There's certain ones they, they do and don't count along the way. But we know that without hesitation, we can state that the Bible is, a trustworthy, is trustworthy. And again, that we don't have to hide anything. So another detail that's attacked is the wording in verse 15. Verses 15 and 16 is a little funny. It can leave the impression that Jacob was buried in Shechem along with Joseph and the other, other patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, those were the brothers of Joseph that sold him into slavery. But then there's that you know, beautiful story of forgiveness 
um, and res- res- resolution that, that takes place there toward the end of Genesis. Um, but we know that Jacob was buried with Leah and his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, and his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, in the cave of Machpelah at Hebron. And we know that from Genesis 49 and 50. So Joseph and apparently his brothers were the ones who were buried in Shechem. Um, and so it's ultimately Jacob who's the one that physically purchases that land. But go back to what we talked about earlier. Anything that Jacob purchased, anything that would be his land, would also in the, in the Hebrew mindset would belong to his father Abraham, just as the entire nation of Israel is Abraham's land. Um, and so in a certain sense, Abraham bought you know, everything that any Israelite had ever bought. It, it all belongs to him in a certain, certain way. Um, in our, you know, and, and that comes from a, you know, also a mindset that's much more communal and collective in its thinking, as, and it's hard, sometimes might be hard for us in our Western individualistic mindset to um, understand that viewpoint. Because a lot of times, you know, we'd say, well, I bought that. I bought my car. My daddy didn't buy my car. I bought my car. You know, and we'd be really proud of that. And he was like, well, whose car is that? Well, it's my car. It's not my dad's car. But if you ask Jacob, you know, if he was alive today and he bought a car, whose car is that? You know, is that Abraham's car? It's like, well, of course it's Abraham's car. You know, it's just a mindset that's, that's different in how people think. He's like, Jacob would say, yeah, it's my car. It's also my father's car because everything I own belongs to my father. Everything that Abraham owned belongs to his descendants. It's just like this continuum that goes back and forth. Uh, it's just a different way of looking at the world and of thinking about things. Um, okay. But why is, why is Stephen talking about it in his terms? What's the point that he's trying to make in his message? Because there is a point, and it is important. At this time, Shechem is now the capital of Samaria. That's why Stephen's bringing up Shechem and really nailing the part about Shechem so much. Why is this? Because, again, the Samaritans were partially Jewish and partially Gentile. Okay? So from those who are fully Jewish, don't accept the Samaritans. And actually, they had no dealings with them. There was a lot of hatred, a lot of prejudice there towards them. Gentiles also, a lot of times, didn't like the Samaritans. Why? They're too Jewish. You know, and, they, and they, you know, worshipped Yahweh. You know, you know, they were monotheistic. They, they didn't take on all the, the gods of the, of the Greeks and everything else and Romans. So they weren't, accepted, they weren't accepted in the Jewish world and they weren't accepted in the Gentile world. They were literally between a rock and a hard place. I mean, that was their life. And so these purely Jewish leaders getting pound them about the importance of Shechem and God's, you know, that, that God cares about this place. It's kind of sticking it to them a little bit. And not in a negative way, but like kind of goading them toward the truth. And it's also setting a stage here because in chapter 8, you're going to have Samaria get reached in mass. So he's setting a stage. Again, you know, Luke, Stephen says what he says for a reason, and Luke includes what he includes in his writing for a reason. He's setting a stage because the gospel is moving forward. You know, it's, it's moving forward, and it, and it has this sort of progression to it in the book of Acts. Though we know there are individuals who come to follow Jesus from all sorts of groups. You know, even before, we see Jesus with the woman in the, at the well in, in uh, John chapter 4, right? And you see that she, you know, it seems pretty clear, she becomes a believer in Jesus in John chapter 4, and so do many other Samaritans. So it's not like we don't have any Samaritans who aren't followers of Jesus yet. But we, but we really don't have followers of Jesus who are part of the, the church as far as, the, as how the church understands it at this point in history. That's still being formed in their, their minds and in their understanding. Okay. And so, we have this progression in the book of Acts, Jerusalem with mostly, you know, Jewish people who speak Hebrew. Then it opens up to Jewish people who speak Greek. Now, then the next step in Acts chapter 8 we're going to see is 
people who are half Jewish, half Gentile. And then it's going to move on to 100% Gentile and the expansion of the church in the Gentile world. But there's a, as Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And it's starting off, you know, it's a geographical location in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Like there's a moving away from the center of Jerusalem and by that, grabbing more different types of people. And so there's a progression in how Luke tells a story as he goes from one people group to the next and gives a story of their salvation. So here he's just planting the seeds to show, you know, what's going to happen in Samaria. It's just in the next chapter, chapter 8. Not far. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, And so that's why he's doing that. He's setting the stage. The question for us today, um, in our context, in our church, in our city, is asking that question for us, you know, where is the gospel going forward around you, around us? You know, who in your life is showing signs that they're, you know, they're, they're interested in hearing the message, just like at the synagogue of the freed menu, there were, there were many there who were listening to the message of, of Stephen and were being attracted to it. We're going to see in chapter 8 this move of God in, in, you know, among the Samaritans. So there's a, there's a question I think that this poses in our, you know, for our church, for our, for our individual lives even, is you know, who around us who am I sharing the gospel with, and, and how am I sharing it with them, and am I, am I starting at an appropriate point you know, so that they can understand it? Am I okay if some received, as we saw at the, in verse 7, you know, with many of the people, even many of the unexpected priests coming and, and becoming followers of Jesus, am I okay with that, and I'm, at the same time, am I okay with people saying, you know, really hateful, angry things toward me for that message as well. I mean, Stephen didn't want that, but he was willing to endure that for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of everybody else being able to hear the truth of the message. And so that's the question for us today is, you know, in your life, if I was asked, you know, each one of us, you know, look back over the last two weeks, who have you shared the gospel with? You know, who have, you know, even let's back up and go, you know, how have you been praying about sharing the gospel with other people? Who have you been trying to interact with, you know, in your life and to have opportunity to share the message of Jesus with them? How have those people responded? Where do you see God working? Where do you think, even in this next week, you need to be anticipating moving forward of opportunities and of sharing Jesus with with people? And what sort of answers do we get back from that. Now, for some people, it's easier because some people have the gift of evangelism and, you know, it's just naturally at the forefront of your heart and mind of, I got to share. I won't, I, it's not a guy to. It's just, man, I get, I get to. I get to go talk to, to G, you know, about somebody. I get to go to Jesus and talk to him about somebody, and then I go get to talk to somebody about Jesus. And that's just what I want to do, and that's just what's naturally overflowing because God's given you that heart. God's given you that gift. Yet, we see the message, you know, to the apostles, I think to the whole church, Jesus is, Jesus is saying, you, you know, you will be my witnesses. We, we all have a, a response, we have a collective responsibility, we all have an individual responsibility. You know, in your per- place of work, there's probably people that are there that you're the only one in position to reach them. You might be the only follower of Jesus they know. You same thing in your classes or in your social activities or whatever it is. You know, it, it matters. And, and all of us need to be thinking about that and considering that and praying through that and saying, okay, Jesus, I'm here, I'm available. And, and when it comes to the message of Jesus Christ and sharing that message in our world, availability, availability, just a willingness, yes, Jesus, I, I will do as you give me opportunity, I will take it. Availability is so much more important than any other thing that you could have. Anything other thing that you'd have. 
I mean, it's, I hate to say this and it's sad as it, but I've seen some of the most talented people that I've ever met in my life have thrown, just thrown it away. And it came down to availability and willingness. It didn't really have anything to do with, the, with ability. Ability helps. Stephen had ability, certainly. But, with, but what is Stephen without availability? What has he accomplished without availability? Nothing. I mean, that's, that's just like that basic bottom line thing, the availability. God, you can use my life how you see fit. And I'm okay with that. And if I get to be, if I get to be Joseph and save the nation, you know, go through the hard time but save the nation, I'm okay with that. And if I'm also just an average Hebrew slave that is born a slave and dies a slave, but yet can live in, in, and walk with you, I'm okay with that. Because not everybody gets to be Joseph. Not, and not everybody gets to be Stephen. Not everybody gets to be Paul. We don't get to be them. You only get to be you and the person God made you to be and, and, and where he puts you in time and place and history. And the question is, you know, I'm okay with, with whether it's small or big or whatever it is, whatever role you have, Jesus, I'm good with it. I'm available to you. And are we available to learn in the hard and difficult times? Or do we just expect that God is a genie in a bottle, that we say our prayers and we get everything we want, and that that is the great Christian life? The record of the scripture doesn't have space for that. This doesn't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your, your goodness to us, God. Pray that most of all we would be available um, to you. You would form us into who you desire us to be. Help us not to run from hard times, but Lord, to embrace them as a crucible of, of character building, of the place where we grow and become more like your son. Because Jesus, if it has ever been anyone to suffer on this earth, it's been you. And we can't be like you without experiencing some elements of that. And so, Lord, uh, while we don't desire it, help us not to run from the testings and from the, from the trials and from the, from the difficult things. And yet help us always to run from temptation, from sin, from the things that would damage your name. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness to us. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray.